Suspend your disbelief. Let yourself be led down a path into the world of the paranormal, where ghosts, shadow people, cryptids, aliens, and all things supernatural dominate. Immerse yourself in a dimension of ominous trepidation with your hosts, Dan, Danny, and Rachel. Welcome to the Phantom Faction Podcast. Welcome to this edition of Phantom Faction Podcast. I'm Danny. I'm Dan. And I'm Rachel. You know, we, we're recording on a different evening than we normally do, and Rachel just rushed through the door, and <laughs> I don't know if you mind me saying, Rachel, but you're taking some singing lessons, I guess, right? Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, you, you know, you could, and maybe there already is one, but you could be the singing medium. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I think I, I think there already is one. I think she yep. was on the on the podcast a long <laughs> time ago. <laughs> That's right. I was going to say it sounded familiar, but uh, we wanted right. to sing, Rachel. But uh, we, th- I think that's fantastic. Anyway, you got a nice voice. So, how about the how about the rapping medium or the crooning medium? <laughs> The the, yod- the yodeling medium. Yeah. Oh, there we go. I should learn yeah. to yodel. Yeah, I think you'd make a great yodeler. <laughs> <laughs> you look like a yodeler. Oh, oh my gosh. Thanks. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh well. Listen, <laughs> what what are we if we're not uh, you know bantering back and forth every once in a while? Absolutely. Right? So, Danny, anything going on in the paranormal world at your end? Not necessarily. Um, well, you know, it's, I've, it's I've been... got a story. I've been keeping a busy summer, trying to fit in some holidays as well as trying to uh, finish work. It just, uh, it's been kind of crazy. So I haven't had too much time to actually think about it or there's always some paranormal things going on. So. Yeah. What about you, Rachel? Any any uh, ghoulies in your home these days? No, no. It's been uh, pleasantly calm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've had uh, a visitor. Uh-oh. for for about a week or more and last night came through super clear uh it's always in my basement it's always in the vestibule like i got a little l-shaped thing like to get into the family room here and it's like a, a shadow person it's about three and a half feet tall though i don't know if it's a kid or if it's just a tiny shadow person but uh, i even messaged tony last night you know mm-hmm. and i said man there's something going on here and i don't know i've got a little visitor here and i have to make a few calls and get rid of him yeah, because uh, I don't think it's a spirit. I, I don't think it's something good. But uh, well, knowing you, you like to bring home everything. Yes, I'm <laughs> the I'm the shadow person magnet, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, speaking of shadow people, uh, <laughs> our guest this evening, I'm sure he's run into a, a few shadow people all the way from Washington state we have mr ross allison joining us and ross and i connected on facebook where he sent me a friend request and i was like you know and i don't usually accept friend requests from people i I don't know but i but i messaged him and i said what's going on and who are you and what are you and and here we are and i'm glad that we connected because man this guy has got a million (laughs) uh stories to tell i'm sure ross uh thank you so much for for joining us uh tonight and uh Welcome to the Phantom Fashion Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, you never uh, know. I might have been stalking you. you, you maybe, know. maybe <laughs> you're, you're not. You're not a shadow man. You're not a shadow man. You're more than three feet tall, though, aren't you? <laughs> I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. five ten. So I think okay. I'm good. There I'm we good. go. Oh, you're just little. <laughs> Ross, you've been on. Uh, it says right here on your website, which is a ghost.org, which is a very cool name. Uh, you don't you don't mess around there. Uh, you've been on a number of radio programs, magazines, books, news coverage, and television shows, and including uh, Ghost Hunters, Ghost mm-hmm. Adventures, mm-hmm. The Tonight Show, MTV, CMT, CNN, A&E, holy cow, the list goes on and on, but you finally made it to the Phantom Faction. There you go. That's and, I mean, I reached my goal. I can your, go now. <laughs> your, name, your name is in lights now. You can cross that off your bucket list, and uh, you're done. Awesome. Right? Awesome. Thank after, you for completing that done. for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here to help, right? <laughs> Ross, you have quite a, a paranormal biography here. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. You've written 12 books, some with titles such as Ghostology 101, Spooked in Seattle, Tacoma's Haunted History, Haunted Toys, uh, many more. And one that we're going to have to bring up where it's called Haunted Sex XX. <laughs> and uh, we'll, maybe we'll save that one for later. But I'm sure, but I'm sure it's got some interesting history to it. 
there's always a catalyst to uh, people's interest in the paranormal. Mm-hmm. And I've got to ask you, where did it all start for Ross Allison? Well, my origin story uh, takes me back to my childhood. I grew up or I've grown up with a mother that loves ghost stories. And ever since I was a little kid, she just used to love to terrorize me and my sisters by reading us ghost stories. And, you know, she wasn't intentionally trying to scare us, but, you know, she, she, she loved it because she'd get into it, you know, and change her voices and everything like that. And did she tell she, these stories to children's services after they picked her up? Yeah, and her away? <laughs> <laughs> but I was just always fascinated, you know, it got to the point where we were always asking her for, for a new ghost story. And um, it was just that that rooted that that curiosity as to is are these stories real? Do people really experience this? So um, as I grew up, I, you know, continued that fascination with ghosts, you know, checking out every ghost book I could find in the library, never returning it, that type of thing. Um, But um, I actually started to get involved in the paranormal field back in the 90s. I had actually moved to California and um, got to, you know, go to a few Lloyd Arabox lectures and classes. And I basically uh, had the opportunity to move back home. Now, this was in 2000, and back then, you know, ghost hunting was still kind of a hush-hush thing. Nobody talked about it. In fact, there was no ghost hunting groups in Washington when I had moved here, and so I decided, you know what, I really want to pursue this, and I ended up calling all my buddies, and I said, hey, guys, there's a great cemetery down the street, and this is Halloween, too, you know, so they're like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's go check out that cemetery, but they all wanted to hit the bars first. So I realized, you know, a bunch of drunks in the cemetery, not a good thing. Some, some liquid courage to get you <laughs> exactly. in there, right? So I, a friend of mine just said, why don't you start your own group? So I did and uh, ended up starting the oldest ghost hunting group in the Pacific Northwest. And it just kind of took off from there. Very cool. Now, you're a pioneer, in a sense, to, uh, you know, the paranormal world, especially in, in Washington and your area. Mm-hmm. Now, do you remember the very first real occurrence that you had and where you're like oh, man yeah. man this is real stuff i mean mom yeah. wasn't mom wasn't kidding well the, the funny thing is is um when i got involved in the paranormal field most people that had already been in the field before me had had those experiences you know they lived in haunted houses that, those were those that that was their original uh, stories to get involved in this field so i was kind of like the odd man out you know, why, you know, are you involved in this? You don't have any experiences. So for me, it took a, a little bit of time before I had actually had those experiences to say, yeah, there is something to this. And one of those was um, we were one of the first groups to actually investigate and spend the night on Alcatraz. And so they had opened up a lot of spots that were not open to the public. And this is before they had all their renovations. Now, if you take the Alcatraz tour, there's a lot of spots that you can check out now that I got to see when it was still run down and dilapidated. It was pretty cool. But one of the spots that they took me into was uh, the morgue. And this is where they kept the bodies of the prisoners before they shipped them over to San Francisco. So I go into this morgue and connected to the morgue was this tunnel that went down into the underground portion of the island. Now, if you're not familiar with the island, it actually started out as a military base and it became a military prison before it became the state penitentiary that we were more familiar with now. It goes back to the Civil War, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Skull, yeah. a lot of history. Yeah, Civil War prisoners were, were put there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, so I go, I'm the first to venture down in this tunnel to go down to this underground section and I enter this room. And it was just a dirt floor, you know, a brick arch, you know, walls and ceiling. And I thought, oh, you know, this is a pretty cool room. Now, as I started to make my way into the room and started to get across the room, other members had followed me in. But this time I wanted to get a picture of the entrance. So I turned around and this is before digital photography. You know, I hate to date myself, but, you know, yeah, when you had to look through the view screen, if anybody remembers that. So I'm looking through the view screen to take the widest angle that I can of the entrance. And I start backing up. And as I backed up, uh, somebody put their hand on my shoulder and stopped me. So I quickly turned around to apologize to the member that I backed into the corner. Nobody there. No one was even around me. And I was kind of shocked because I felt the weight of a man's hand, pressure of his fingers, and it physically stopped me. 
I was taking a step backwards and I was stopped. I was literally wow. expecting to see one of my members behind me. He's like, let me know that he was right behind me. Nobody there. Wow. And from there, it was just like, wow, there, there really is something to this. But then you get, you know, I always try to be more scientific in my approach. And then you always start second guessing yourself. You know, what could have caused that? You know, uh, was it something I did? Was it my jacket, you know, you know, situating itself on my back? You know, I, I muscle twitch, you know, that kind of thing. And then just after, you know, doing this for, you know, going a little over 30 years, it was a situation that, you know, you have more and more of these experiences that just kind of open your mind slowly to realize there is something to this. Absolutely. At the time when, you, you know, before you, when you try to collect yourself and try to debunk everything and figure out a scientific or a rational explanation, did you, you know, did you stay calm or were you like, oh my God, like something just grabbed me and. You know, I, I were, was you, were just, you ready I, to run it, run across the bay? Uh, you know, or? no, no, I, I wasn't scared at all. I was okay. in more awe and, and more shock. It was still that, you know, that, that, you know, trying to debate what it really was, what it could have been. And I just couldn't come up with any answers. So that whole night, you're just kind of questioning yourself and, you know, going it over and over in your head. And it's just something that, you know, just kind of sticks with you, especially when it's your first experience. Mm-hmm. Now, did anybody else uh, have anything happen to them that, that same night? Do, do you recall? Oh, we had all kinds of interesting things happen at Alcatraz. It, it was an amazing experience and an amazing opportunity to have. And I, I remember one time we were actually going down into the tunnels. Uh, this is where they would actually, where the prisoners would come into Alcatraz. Um, so it was the back tunnels that you'd go through under the island. And we were kind of having this, you know, cool opportunity as me and one other guy. And we were just kind of walking, you know, towards the entrance of the tunnel. So we're, we're wait, walking away from the prison and we kept hearing like there was somebody walking behind us, but you know, you're in a tunnel, you got, you know, a little bit of echo reverb going on. So we weren't too sure. So we would just stop. And of course, after a couple of times that we stopped, then you'd hear like the, a couple steps behind you. And, and then so we were like, okay, is there somebody here? You're asking those standard questions, trying to see if something will respond, nothing. And then you just kind of, okay, you know, maybe it's just our imagination. So you walk a little bit more and it happens again and you stop. But this time when I stopped, it actually continued. And it almost sounded like somebody was walking right past us and then just faded away. And I remember where pictures were going off like crazy, you know, trying to see if we could capture something and we couldn't see anything and nothing showed up in the pictures, but you could just definitely hear like somebody was walking right past us. Oh, now uh, look at your website here. I mean, you've, you've done a a million uh, investigations, like places that, uh, you know, would certainly be on anyone's bucket list. You've done the ancient Rams Inn in in England. where the, I think uh, even the Ghost Adventures team was there, and they thought they think it's uh, there's a succubus. That is yeah. one of the stories. Yeah, you've done Alcatraz, the USS Turner Joy, which has been made famous by several uh, paranormal uh, mm-hmm. uh, television shows. The Roman Catacombs, uh, Leap Castle, the Se- Seattle Underground. Told you we could talk ghost stories all night. Oh man, <laughs> uh, one, one. I I really do try to make it my goal to to see at least two new countries every year and try to have the opportunity to investigate and learn a bit a little bit about their, you know, paranormal culture, and so it's it's been an amazing experience to to see you know places like you know the catacombs and it's funny when you go to Rome and this is again before the television shows were really big when I had that opportunity. And you're in the catacombs talking to one of the people in charge and you're trying to tell them that you want to ghost hunt. And back then they, they really didn't understand the concept of ghost hunting. They're like, yes, we have ghosts. I'm like, well, can I do an investigation? Like, what do you mean? You know? So it took a while to kind of convince them what I was trying to do. And I was lucky enough that they actually locked me in a certain section of the catacombs and they had to lock me in a certain section of the catacombs. They didn't want me to wander off. If you've ever been to the catacombs, you know, stories are that they're so massive that you could easily get lost down there and be lost for days. Sure. So they put me in a small section 
and allowed me to kind of do my thing. They gave me like an hour to just, you know, do my little ghost hunt. And I have to admit, I, I don't speak Italian. And here I am in, you know, Roman catacombs, and I'm trying to communicate with whatever's there, hoping that, you know, something might be able to understand or even talk to me. And for uh, one of my amazing experiences that I actually captured an EVP. And I always think it's funny when a lot of these, you know, uh, ghost hunters go to all these different countries and they always seem to capture EVPs in English. You know, I always think that's kind of odd, but here I am trying to communicate with something that, you know, I'm hoping is there. And when I had asked, is there anybody here? I got the response C, hmm. which was yes. You know, I, that's one thing I, I don't think we brought up uh, that kind of topic where, you know, you talk about going to a, a different uh, culture, a different country where you're trying to speak to ghosts that uh, wouldn't have spoken English. Like, and right. even in the Roman catacombs, like Italian, right. Italian back then wasn't even like an official language. They had right. like some, something like 300 dialects in Italy, you know, you had Neapolitano or, you know, I'm probably yeah, butchering it, but they had Sicilian and Corsican yeah. or, you know, and languages everywhere. So I almost wonder if uh, they don't all just understand the intent maybe or i don't know maybe there's maybe he's hearing you in italian right it's almost like because you've you've often heard of uh, psychic mediums where they're connecting with uh you know trying to do a reading for someone and you know the lady's italian or portuguese or german and it's like well how are you going to connect with their their dead loved ones if they didn't speak english but it it's never been a problem right and i don't think the spirit well, i think it's problem it's, with it either. it's all for me i think it's all about intent Mm -hmm. You know, I think, you know, no matter what, if you were just to walk into someone's, you know, house and your intent is to try and communicate with them, they're going to try and communicate the best that they can as well. Right. And try to understand what you're trying to say just as much as you're trying to understand what they're trying to say. So I think it's all about our intent when we go into these places and are trying to communicate. So we're, you are from Washington. Uh, you've written a couple of books, uh, Haunted Tacoma and, and, uh, there's a few others here as well. Um, just staying in that part of the world, just for your sake, and Washington State is not really a place that you you would consider to be a paranormal hotspot. You'd think probably think more about along the lines of Bigfoot, maybe, or UFOs along the coast, but then not, but not really spirits. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little about. Uh... Well, I think we do get overlooked quite a bit because you know Washington is still well, is the youngest, you know, state in, you know, the U.S. So, you know, we're just, uh, you know, over 150 years old. So you're, you're looking at a situation where it was still territories, you know, as part of Oregon territory, as part of California territory, you know, those all that before it was all defined. But um, we still have our share of history. We still have our share of, you know, traumatic events. You know, we dealt with, you know, Native American wars, we, you know, dealt with, you know, the rough and tumble of the Old West, um, you know, the Great Depression. So we have our fair share of, of what a lot of the country still dealt with. I just think people just overlook us because, you know, even for myself, I'm always, you know, eager to go to the, the East Coast because there's a lot more history there, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think a lot of people don't really think of us as having a lot of great ghost stories but we do you know we do have a lot of great stuff and we do have a lot of experiences as well because i remember when i first started because i also uh own a ghost tour company called spook in seattle and my first ghost uh, tours that i used to do was along the waterfront and people kept asking me why don't you do ghost tours in pioneer square because pioneer square is the heart of seattle it's where seattle started it's where the pioneers all started. So it's the oldest part of the city. And I really didn't give it much thought because there wasn't a lot of ghost stories being told of Pioneer Square. There was more, I found a lot more stories along the waterfront until I actually went into Pioneer Square and started talking to a lot of the business owners and started to realize, wow, there is a lot of ghost stories here. A lot of ghost stories that weren't published that people didn't know because people didn't talk a lot about you know, ghosts too. So it ended up being one of my biggest tours was going into Pioneer Square because there was a great history and there was a lot of amazing ghost stories to tell as well. 
One of the things that fascinates me about large cities uh, is the underground tunnels that a lot of them have. Mm -hmm. uh, Toronto has a few. Chicago, I know, does. New York City, of course. And Seattle is also known for its its underground. Yep, and this is, something, this is something that I became aware of years and years ago uh, from actually reading a comic book, of all things, uh, learning about the Seattle underground. And I just saw a picture of it on your, your website. So maybe you could tell us what's what's lurking in the Seattle underground. Yeah, if, if anybody ever comes to Seattle, that's like the number one tourist thing that you come to see is the Seattle underground or the Pike Place Market. But um, yeah, the underground is a big part of our history because basically what had happened was uh, Seattle had suffered a great Seattle fire, which was in 1889. Um, it was July 4th. And basically what had happened um, was the city had burnt to the ground by accident. And um, this actually what seemed to be a huge tragedy ended up being the best thing for the city because Seattle was built at sea level, which basically uh, caused a lot of drainage problems for the city. And so, you know, when you're dealing with a, situ a situation where you're built at sea level, sewage becomes a big problem, you know, because we're right on the water too. So you're, you're hoping that, you know, yeah, it's great when the sewage goes out with the tide, but it also comes back in with the tide. <laughs> so there was a big problem with that. And so now that the city had burned to the ground, they thought, well, here's a great opportunity for us to rebuild our city. And obviously what they needed to do was get themselves above sea level. So this will help all the drainage problems that they had. And so they did this by basically raising the streets, not the buildings, the streets. Mm -hmm. So they built these walls around all the new buildings that went up. And then they basically leveled off those walls by putting a street at the top of the walls. So you have this nice big waffle of you know, buildings in the crevices and the streets up above. So if you want to get across the street, you basically have to go up a ladder, cross the street, and go down another ladder. Yeah, that seems pretty safe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so basically what happens is when they finally uh, level off the streets and build the sidewalks to connect to the second floor of the buildings, this creates what they call the underground. Okay, so this is basically a tunnel that goes all the way around the block. And... Throughout the years, uh, it basically was used for a lot of shadier business, especially when uh, alcohol was banned. So they became a lot of speakeasies, uh, gambling dens, opium dens, and even prostitution because it was hidden away. It was tucked away from the city so they could get away with a lot of this stuff. So there's our shadier history. Our, our drama has taken place in a lot of these underground sections. And so as you know, time moves on, um, it was back in the 1970s when um, Bill Spidell, a historian of Seattle, realized, wow, there is talk about these underground tunnels. And he decided to investigate them and he did find that they were there. And that's when he started the first underground tours. And then from there, ghost stories started to emerge and here we are. What have you come across in those tunnels? Oh. Well, um, let's see. One of my favorite stories to tell is um, we had actually did an investigation, and this is actually what they call the teller vault, um, because back in the day during the gold rush, um, being that there was so much gold coming into Seattle at all hours, a few of the banks decided to have tellers that would be open uh, later throughout the evening. So, but these were in the underground sections. And being that uh, during the gold rush, Seattle didn't have very much law, people were doing whatever they could to get a hold of the gold, come back to Seattle. So what happens is uh, a lot of these miners would come in with gold in their pockets and people would do whatever they can to swindle that gold out, out of the, off of them, you know, even rob them, even kill them. So that's why the banks decided to have later hours so that they could get that gold into safe places. Well, one of the most haunted places in the underground is the uh, old vault. And we were down in the vaults doing a standard, you know, investigation, asking the standard questions. And one of the questions that we had asked was, what is your name? And the response that we got was Edward. And it was a pretty clear EVP. I'd say it was pretty much on the borderline of a, a class A EVP. And so... 
we had held on to that for quite some time. And I would say probably a good maybe six or seven years later, another team had had the opportunity to investigate the underground. And we had not communicated. This uh, was a team that had just started out. And, um, and I'll also uh, let you know, I had not published any of my findings in the underground. So this was still kind of under wraps of what had happened. And so this team, you know, goes in, they do their investigation and they happen to ask the same questions. And the response that they got when they asked, can you tell us their name? And this is in the exact same spot where we had captured that Edward. They captured an EVP that says Eddie. Hmm. And it sounds almost exactly the same voice print from the one that we had captured where it said Edward, and then they get one that says Eddie. Mm -hmm. So for me, that just made it so much more credible. For sure. It's like, you know, we hadn't communicated and here we capture almost exactly the same EVP. Now you, you teach uh, an actual course called Ghostology 101. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you run into all sorts of uh, different types of characters that, that come to uh, your lectures or, or whatever, uh, and skeptics, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. well, yeah. uh, what do you say to the skeptics? What, what's, your, what's your approach, like, especially when you, when you capture these EVPs and, and get such uh, you know, good evidence well, or think, compelling evidence? I think for me, the secret of my success is I've always been very open and honest with my approach. I feel that, you know, we really do have to be more transparent in how we conduct our investigations. Unfortunately, and I hate to say this, but, um, you know, most people get their training from watching the television shows. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are not doing it right, you know, and people tend to forget that the television shows are based off of entertainment. You know, they have to keep people entertained. Most of us that have done an investigation, you know, we can sit there for hours and nothing happens. Exactly. And to sit there and realize that a lot of these shows, amazing things happen, you know, almost every, you know, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating because people get in the field thinking that that's the way it is. So for me, I always bring that to, you know, their attention. It's like, you know, don't judge me by what you see on TV. I understand the problems in the field and I will be more than happy to share those problems with the field with you because, you know, skepticism is a very important tool to have in this field because all skepticism does is help us to look into things that we may have overlooked. You know, don't be afraid to, to have a skeptic, a skeptic on your team. Don't be afraid to, you know, even reach out to somebody who's skeptic and say, hey, look at this over and tell me what you think. Now, they may not agree, you know, with what you think it could be, but again, it just helps us to think of things that we might not have thought of. In fact, it was kind of interesting is um, years ago, I had the Skeptic Society reach out to me and asked if I would be willing to do a lecture. And I said, I'd be more than happy to. And he was kind of shocked, you know, he was gonna like, really? I was like, yeah, why not? He's like, I had reached out to hundreds of other ghost hunters and they all refused to talk to us. And I said, well, you know, I'm not afraid to talk to you guys. I'd be more than happy to share, you know, what we're looking at and what we think could be possibly paranormal. And to my surprise, you know, because I was expecting to, you know, having these really, you know, these, these people coming at me with, you know, pointing fingers and laughing, but no, they were just open-minded and they were just fascinated with what we thought or what could be possibly paranormal experiences. And, and that's all they wanted. They just wanted to hear what we claim to be paranormal. And so what I thought would possibly, and I think what you know, a lot of ghost hunters were afraid of is that they were going to be personally attacked. And I was prepared for that. They just had a lot of questions and they were excited that I was willing to answer them. So I think for one, it, you really do have to be honest. And we all have to be honest with our, even our own experiences. I, I know it's exciting when you're out there doing an investigation and you think or something possibly might have happened, we get all excited and then that's when the drama comes in and then a lot of people make it more, you know, scarier than it actually was. The same mm -hmm. recipe that Hollywood follows, you know, look at Annabelle, you know. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's a lot of those problems that we find in the field because we will never advance ourselves in this field 
if we are wasting our time with fake stories and fake evidence, because we really do need to see what's happening out there and we need to have a better understanding of what's happening out there. But if there's going to be far more people out there making up these stories of their experiences in the paranormal field and submitting bad evidence or fake evidence, then that only takes us three steps backwards and not the three steps forward we need because we really do have to understand what is it that we consider paranormal. Mm -hmm. And if we're just chasing stories, we're never going to get anywhere. And speaking of evidence, uh, in all the years you've been doing this, what uh, can you give us an example of your absolute best evidence that you've ever captured? Hmm. Well, um, I would have to take it to um, my more recent experiences because um, one of the things that I've been working on for the past six years is surprisingly, I, I've found that I'm the first to actually try and prove touch. When you know people have claimed that they've been touched by ghosts in various you know positive and negative ways, no one's ever focused their attention on how to validate that experience because it is such a personal experience. And I know we've all heard the stories, you know, I was scratched by a ghost, you know, I was kissed by a ghost, held down by a ghost, but it all becomes your personal experience and we just have to take your word for it. And I had a case um, about six, over six years ago now where a young man who was actually working in, in an abandoned brothel, he was helping to uh, put up some, sh um, some um, patch some holes and stuff and uh, sheetrock, he was putting up sheetrock. And he was alone up there. Uh, his mother went downstairs to go get some tools. And so as he was standing there alone, something groped him. And so, you know, it was a, that was an interesting experience. And so he tells me this story and he said, that's not the, the last time that had happened. He said he'd had other experiences with this, what seemed to be a very sexual encounter. And I had heard lots of stories like this, you know, research takes us, you know, back to the entity case, one of the most famous cases. And it was, it was just a situation where it's just like, you know, damn, you know, I, I, I realize you've had this experience, but you know, I just have to take your word for it. But I got to thinking and I was like, well, how would you prove that kind of an experience? And so I started doing research. I was like, you know, digging around, trying to see if anybody had ever done an experience, uh, experiments that had to do with touch. Nothing was out there. And so I just realized, you know what, I'm going to see if I can take the on this challenge. And I've always believed that if we could focus our attention on at least one particular phenomenon, once we have a better understanding of that one phenomena, this becomes a root. And it will help us to understand the other elements of paranormal. But the problem with the paranormal field, we're just all over the place. You know, we don't really focus our attention on one particular thing. And so I was going to make that my goal. I wanted to have a better understanding of how does touch happen? How do we experience this? And so the first thing that I realized is, well, let's be honest here. We're going to have to put somebody naked in a haunted room. <laughs> because if they're wearing clothes, it just con contaminates their experience. And anybody in the scientific field is going to tell you, well, that person was wearing a shirt. You're going to tell me that they felt somebody touch their back. I'm sorry. It's, it's corrupt. You, you, you don't have anything to validate that. So for me, nudity just made sense, you know, and putting the giggles aside, I know naked ghost hunting, but uh, <laughs> that'd, was... be a good, that'd be a good uh, reality <laughs> show. I think. Yeah. 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 yeah, you should pitch that. <laughs> well, we'll get there. So, okay. uh, so, you know, it just really made sense to me. And anybody in the, in the scientific field is like, yeah, right. You know, it makes sense, you know, and, and naked experiments was nothing new throughout history. We've done it just to understand how the human body, you know, deals with certain situations. And so I started to find volunteers that were willing to sit naked because you have to have a controlled experiment. And so I would put them in these rooms. They would sit there. I'd have a special equipment around them. Other types of experiments would go on and things were happening. You know, people were claiming to have these experiences. You know, I'd put thermal imaging on them, but the experiences we were getting were still very limited. I wanted some more details. Um, I wanted something that I could submit wholeheartedly, you know, to the skeptic world, to the scientists out there and say, hey, look at this. And I found that, you know, even though I was, excuse me, getting some interesting data to validate their experiences, 
it just wasn't enough for me. So luckily, I had actually done a show. Um, it was a, a science community um, show. And I had really hit it off with this, this scientist on the show. And so I thought, you know, his name was Chad Goodwin. I thought, you know, maybe um, he can give me some ideas because that's what I was looking for. I was looking for some inspiration where I could take this. How can I advance this you know, research? So I called him up out of the blue and I said, you know, hey, Chad, I'm, I'm doing these experiments and I kind of wanted to get your idea. And he was like, um, well, what are you doing? And I told him, I said, you know, I'm taking these people, putting them in you know, haunted locations and I'm trying to prove touch. And so I asked him the very simple question, how would you prove touch? And I, I asked that out to you guys too. If you were in this situation, how would you prove touch? Mm -hmm. And that's what really got the thing going. And he was like, wow, I'm really curious about this. So luckily for me, he was willing to go with me on one of my um, outings to do these experiments. And from there, it just took off. He actually had his own experiences. And so he was able to help me advance my specter system. And now we have a system where for the first time in history, we are able to track phenomena. And an example of this um, is where a subject was sitting in the chair and felt something, well, it was Chad. He felt something, you know, on the back of his neck. And he also heard it. There was a loud static noise. It was really weird. We captured an audio as well. And come to find out he had been scratched. And so he went back and looked at the spectra system and sure enough, through the various sensors that we have in the spectra system, you could actually see that something came up to him and then quickly went away at the exact moment that he felt that sensation and, and heard that, that static spark. So right there, that is amazing research. I don't think I've ever been touched during an investigation, but I can recall just sitting uh, in a room and my hair uh, moving. Right? Mm -hmm. For no particular reason, uh, not a wind, not anything. Uh, and it would happen a few times. And it's like, is that like internal or is it external? Uh, very hard to tell. And, mm -hmm. and that very well could be ions in the air, the static electricity. And that's very one true, of the things yeah. that we feel is tied to paranormal phenomena. But you don't see a lot of people actually collecting that data. No. You know, no, it's no, unfortunate. No. It really is because there's so many people, and I hate to say this because I know it gets a lot of people upset, but you got so many ghost hunters that are, have become lazy ghost hunters. Mm -hmm. They're focused on the instant gratification. Most ghost hunting teams don't even want to spend the time going back and listening to their audio or going back and watching their videos. Mm -hmm. They want that instant gratification that they see on television shows. Yeah. That's why now most ghost hunting groups are more focused on ghost boxes, right? You know, or you know, ovuluses and stuff. They they want, and I hate to say it, more of the suggestive evidence rather than what could be real evidence. But you're more when you go into an investigation, um, more trusting your your own feelings. Are are you using any equipment? To... I, even when it comes to my own feelings, I want data to back it up. Right. You know, so I'm more about advancing the field by having more equipment that gives us the data that lets us know what the readings are in the environment what are we really experiencing because mm -hmm. let's be honest we really don't know what a ghost is or let alone what a ghost is made of mm -hmm. until we have that information right now we're just dependent on suggestive evidence and our own personal experiences right only gets us so far yeah, there's so much we're missing out on. We need more data to validate these experiences. We had a guest on a previous show that talked about um, actually taking the temperature of the room they're investigating, mm -hmm. the barometric pressure, all sorts of weather data just to, you know, uh, it would help him as far as uh, trying to figure out whether anything weather related or, you know, any wind or pressure change. In the room. Exactly. And, and that's, that's the biggest problem is, you know, again, most people don't know how to collect data. Mm. You know, they don't understand the importance of data. And so, you know, they, they assume that because there's a device on the internet that says it's a ghost meter, that it's going to tell you, you have a ghost. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that's not the case. There's no such tool out there that'll tell you that there's a ghost in your room. You know, to, as I said, to develop a tool like that, you have to know what a ghost is made of. We don't have that information right now. We don't have enough people in the field trying to give us or get that information. I, I don't want to believe that I'm the only one out there that wants that information. You know, I, I yeah. want to inspire people that, you know, yeah, it's exciting, you know, to go out and ghost hunt and hopefully have a unique experience, but it's more exciting if you can prove that experience. Yep. And that's mm-hmm. what we need. We need more people that just want to prove it rather than just tell a ghost story. Mm-hmm. Well, we do love our ghost stories, Russ. Come on up. Uh, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I do too. You know, you've, but... you've written 12 books, brother. <laughs> hey, earlier on when you and, you and I were interacting on uh, Messenger there, uh, you're talking about haunted prisons. Uh, I used to be uh, a correctional officer and I've, ha- I've had a few little experiences uh, in a couple of the facilities that I worked in. And you said that book was really tough for you to write. Oh, yeah. Uh, you didn't elaborate, though. So I figured I'd bring it up now uh, and um, uh, get you to uh, explain why that one was tough for you. It's funny because I, I write the Haunted series with David Weatherly. And um, when we decided to do Haunted Prisons, we were already, I think, four books in into the Haunted series. And you know, one of the toughest uh, at that point, the toughest book that I had written or we had written was Haunted Churches. Uh, because you're dealing with also the religious aspect and which can kind of contradict itself in most cases. So that was kind of a tough one to talk about haunted churches. And so when he had brought up, well, let's work on haunted prisons next, I was I'm kind of excited. You know, I've done quite a few prisons myself, you know, being the opportunity to do Alcatraz. So, you know, we started working on this book and we got about halfway through the book and we found ourselves constantly call, calling each other just like, oh, my God, to distress it was just like dealing with these stories. It's not just the ghost stories that are horrific. It's what the living does to the living. You know, it, it ended up almost being like a crime novel. When you Tell me about talking, it. <laughs> yeah, when you start talking about, you know, what some of these prisoners have done to people. You know, I'm writing stories and doing research on situations where in one prison, you know, the uh, prisoners were able to escape and take over the prison. And one of their biggest goals was to go after the snitches, which was, you know, in a separate wing. And when they finally got access to all these snitches, they tortured these men to death. I mean, putting blow torches to their heads till their heads exploded, you know? It was those kinds of stories, tying them up and, you know, and, you know, cutting off their genitals, you know, stuff like that. You're starting to discover as you're writing about these prisons and the horrific things that happened in these prisons as to why they could be haunted. And that was something that me and David were constantly on the phone with each other, like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I can't believe I found the story, you know, but one of the things that really got me going was the Ohio State uh, Penitentiary. Very well known. It's been featured, you know, tons and tons of ghost shows. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it was also featured in, um, what was it, uh, that movie, famous movie? Um, Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank, yes, Shawshank Redemption. Now, I had the opportunity to investigate that a few times and had amazing experiences. So I was really excited to be able to write about this place. But one of the most famous stories there is the story about the um, warden's wife who had uh, been shot and, and died in the, the warden's wing. For I, I don't know how long or when this story came about, you know, the, the fact of the matter is it did happen. All right. Uh, she was shot and she did, did die. But there had been a story circulating for quite some time now that her death uh, was caused by her husband, that he killed her for various different reasons. You know, she wanted a divorce. Uh, she caught him cheating. You know, I, I found all kinds of different stories as to why he would have done this. But the main story was that they believe she haunts the, the prison because she was murdered. Well, the story to kind of cover up the murder was that, you know, it was an accident. You know, she was reaching up for a uh, her jewelry box that she kept in the closet 
And when she pulled her jewelry box down, uh, her husband's gun was next to it and it was pulled off with it and fell and hit the ground and it went off and killed her. Three times. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the stories go, you know, various different stories were to that. I, you know, as I started, you know, researching this, you know, I want to, anytime I get a, a hold of a good story, I want to try and get as much detail to people. I don't want it to be like a copy and paste story that you see on the internet. You've seen it one place, you see the exact same story somewhere else. And so for me and David, we always try to get more details as to what uh, is behind these ghost stories, even from our own personal experiences. And so this was a story that I was just kind of torn about because I kept finding different stories uh, as to what happened. And I want the truth. I want to know exactly what happened. So I started digging and digging and I actually came across her death certificate. And sure enough, I, in the death certificate, it actually talked, uh, it showed the path of the bullet, you know, what organs it went through and all that. And so I had submitted this to people in the medical field. And I say, can you give me a diagram of what the path of bullet would be on the human body? And so sure enough, the three of them came back with the exact same diagram, showing that the bullet went through her lower backside and came out her upper shoulder. So for her to have been shot by her husband, he would have had to been lying on the ground to do this. So for me, that just proved it was an accident. Yeah, then maybe it did fall off and hit the right. ground. And, hmm. But then there's more to it. Her children were there when it happened. Her, their son, their eldest son, was across the hall when the gun went off. So he was the first one there to assist his mother. And she didn't die right away. She died three days later in the hospital. So all that just proved that these stories that were featured on tons of television shows to make this you know story more dramatic oh yeah she right. was murdered are all being told out there and for me that was kind of heartbreaking because this is also being disrespectful to people that were really were once alive mm -hmm. their children are uh, their uh, youngest son is still alive and and people are going around telling everybody that his father killed his mother how do you like somebody to do that about your family that just to me wasn't fair. Mm. And I felt the truth needs to be out there. People need to know that this story of, you know, her being murdered is not true whatsoever. Right. Well, it's, well, it's very admirable that, you know, you've, you did know, is that in the book? Like it is you, in the book. Yeah. So you, so you, so you let people know the truth. Yeah. That's, that's I felt amazing. That's the most important thing. I don't want people to continue to tell that falsehood because it's not fair even to those who have died. Mm -hmm. You know, he probably loved her, you know, and, and now he's being, you know, convicted of murdering her, you know? It, it happens a lot. I find that a lot in a lot of these ghost stories is, and, and it tends to come from the fact that, you know, somebody who claims to be psychic or sensitive, and I'm not discarding, there are people out there that are gifted, don't get me wrong, I've worked with quite a few, but there are some people out there that, claim to be and they tell these stories and people take them as fact and then they get passed on and that's what exactly happened with this situation somebody claimed to be a psychic and said no this was not an accident this was murder yeah. and now everybody's talking about the murder case mm. true crime out there is one of the biggest podcasts uh listen to your podcast uh, and as you said, I mean, social media, television, they just, you know, if they can attract the viewers that way, that's what they do. Right. Even if the stories are not true or, you know, it's always speculation. You know, Well, people tend to forget that these were living people at one time. They mm -hmm. still have family out there. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. to go out there and slander them to tell a better story is just wrong. What is your scariest experience that you've ever had? Oh. Um, I was invited to, um, to do a lecture and, um, uh, it was over in Ohio and they, I, they flew me out to Ohio and I was going to do a lecture there. And I was the first one to arrive as one of the guests. And 
nice of them, they actually put us up at the um, Bel Air house. If anybody's familiar with that location, it's been featured on a few shows. And so this is like one of the most well-known haunted locations in the area. It's in Bel Air, Ohio. And so since I was the first to arrive, they had somebody pick me up there and they took me to the house and they ended up just dropping me off at the house. So I'm alone at this house. Now, I don't watch the shows. I'll be honest with you guys. When you find yourself constantly yelling at the TV, it's not worth the stress. So I don't watch a lot of the ghost hunting shows anymore. So I was really, to be honest, unfamiliar with this location. So I was alone in the house, you know, I did a live video feed, you know, kind of walking around and doing my own little ghost hunt because I'm waiting for the other guests to arrive. In fact, uh, who else was supposed to arrive was David Weatherly um, and also Dave Spinks, if you're familiar with him. And so we uh, all three were going to be staying the night at this house. And then uh, Johnny Zappas was going to join us the next night. So I'm alone. I'm waiting for Dave to pick up David at the airport. And apparently uh, Dave was having car trouble. He was having problems with his, his uh, tire. It kept leaking, leaking air. So he had to pull over every 30 miles to fill up his tire. So it was taking him all night to go to get to the airport to pick up David. And so I was there all night until like, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning before they showed up. Now, nothing happened. You know, it was just a interesting old house to kind of walk around and, you know, try to see if there's any ghosts. So we stayed that night. Uh, we stayed a couple of nights there and then we had to get ready for the conference. Now for the conference, they decided to open up the house to ghost hunters so they could spend the night in this house and do their ghost hunts as a bonus for the event. So they moved us to a different location. So during this whole time, I'm there for the weekend. I'm hearing all these stories about the Bel Air house. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, I wish I could have had some interesting experiences. So we didn't really get a chance to ghost hunt uh, while we were there. So when the, the event ended, um, we had the opportunity to go back to the house uh, one more night before we had to be flown out. Unfortunately, that night, uh, she wasn't really prepared for us to stay in the house. So, and it was a really hot day. So she was like, well, yeah, you guys can stay there, but I didn't open any of the windows. So it's probably going to be really hot in the house. And so we're like, that's fine. That's fine. So we get to the house. Now I'm a little familiar with what has happened in this house. And when they like to, what they like to do when they investigate is they like to put somebody alone in the room, put some cameras on them and let them do their own thing. Now, normally my ghost hunting practice is we don't investigate alone. You usually have at least one partner with you to validate your experiences. But being that there's going to be cameras on me, hopefully they capture anything that happens. So I'm going to go ahead and do how, how they like to ghost hunt. So they put me alone in the room. Now, what the room that they put me in is what they call the rape room, because there have been many stories of women being physically attacked in this room. They're going to put me in this room. And there's also stories, a lot of physical violence, uh, you know, from ghosts or ghosts or whatever. And one of the stories was one man was almost pushed out the second story window. So they decided to put me in this room alone with the cameras on me. Now, being honest with you guys, for the first time in my career, I just could not shake this feeling that I just did not want to be in this room. And I've been in some of the most, you know, scariest places you can imagine. And I had been alone in the house, you know, a few days prior, no issues whatsoever. But now I could not shake this feeling like I want to get out of here. I don't want to be here. And I was getting mad at myself. You know, why am I feeling this way? And I didn't want to, you know, I hate to say embarrass myself and say, hey, guys, I can't do this. You know, so I'm just going to tough it out. I'm going to stay in this room and do this. And the room was really hot. I'm like, I'm sweating and I'm trying to communicate with what's ever in the room. And I had um, basically had asked the question, like, you know, can you give me some sort of sign that you're here? And after I had asked that question, to my surprise, the thermal camera flew off the tripod into the air. There was a scream from me afterwards, just so you know. <laughs> but it was very primal, just so we know, okay? <laughs> so they they heard it. They immediately came up, you know, to check on me and make sure I was okay. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thermal camera flew off the camera, off the tripod, you know. So he fixes it. And he's like, well, do you want to continue? Now, to be honest, you know, I'm a little intrigued. Something happened. But I still can't shake that feeling. So this was my way out. But I decided, you know what? I'm going to stay a little longer. So they go ahead and leave. And Dave, David was the last one to leave the room. And 
when he's in the hallway, I can hear him in the hallway. I hear a loud bang and I call out. I was like, what was that? Or, uh, you know, you okay? And of course, you know, he doesn't respond. And I can hear Dave who's downstairs already yell out, you know, what was that as well? And then David's like, what was what, you know, apparently he didn't hear anything. And we both heard this loud bang and we couldn't figure out what that was. So he goes ahead and continues on. And I'm in this room again, you know, trying to shake that feeling. I can't, you know, get it, you know, get it out of my head. But now I'm a little concerned because, you know, I've already experienced a couple weird things. So I start yelling for the guys. I'm like, you know, hey, guys, you know, just to make sure that if anything should happen to me, that they've got my back. So I'm yelling, no response. Now I did hear the front door open and close. So I'm a little concerned thinking they may have left me alone in the house. So now I'm at the point where I'm yelling probably louder than I even screamed for these guys and no one is responding. So I finally had to pull out my cell phone. I had to turn it off of airplane mode and I texted, you know, David to just make sure, you know, that somebody could be within ear range so that they can come and help me if something happens. And right after I text them, I hear them from downstairs yell, what's going on? And, and David comes up and I'm just like, could you guys not hear me yelling for you? And they're like, no, we didn't hear anything. I'm like, what do you mean? You were just downstairs and you couldn't hear me yelling? No. At that point, I had had enough. I'm just like, okay, I need a break. So I go outside, you know, to cool off. And Dave, he actually goes into the room and he does his little EVP session alone. And I can hear him because I'm actually standing outside off to the side of the house. And I'm standing, you know, next to the dri driveway where the window is where he's in the room. So I can hear everything that's going on in that room. And he's cussing out the ghost and everything because one of the things that we experienced there before we had left for that weekend is because he was having car trouble, the next morning he had to fill up his tire with air so he could take it to the garage to get it worked on. So I'm standing in the dining room, he's sitting in the living room, and I he's got the door open and I can see his car sitting in the driveway and you know the, the air pump going. And I happen to look over and I start to see his car backing out of the driveway. And I'm yelling <laughs> to, to Dave, like, your car, your car. And he shoves me aside and runs out the door and his car had backed into a tree. It went across the street, down the hill, into a tree. Now, that was lucky for him. Could have been a lot worse. But he felt that what caused that, because he claims that his emergency brake was on. He doesn't know how that could have happened. But when he's in that room now, you know, doing his little EVP session, he's cussing the ghost out for what had happened to his car. And I can hear him yelling and yelling. And I decide, you know what, I'm going to do a live video feed and kind of talk my way through what I had just experienced. And so I'm doing this live video feed on Facebook. And, you know, I'm just, you know, sharing everybody with what I just experienced and everything. And I, I heard David stop doing what he was doing. So he must have been done. And I'd say I probably about 10 minutes into my live video feed. And David comes around the corner of the porch and he goes, oh, there you are. And I'm like, yeah, here I am. I've been here the whole time. He's like, could you not hear Dave calling out your name throughout the house? He said he even came outside on the front porch and was calling for me. I'm like, no, I didn't hear anything. I've been on live feed the whole time. And everybody on live feed is witnessing this. And they're like, nobody heard anything. And to me, that was one of the weirdest experiences I ever had doing a paranormal investigation. It's like they were masking uh, or suppressing the vocals, right? Exactly. Yeah. There was uh, something going on that I had never experienced before. So do you think uh, with the car, do you think that was them messing with the vehicle or do you, you know, I don't know. slipped you know, out of gear? I, and... I'm just a witness to the situation. I saw the car backing up. You know, I'm, I'm not Dave that I can validate. Yes, I put on the emergency brake, you know. Right. Um, I... I he, he claims it was, he claims even when the cops showed up and, you know, they, they saw that the emergency brake was on. So it's interesting, you know, um, mm. that maybe there's some physics to it that could have caused it to happen. Um, I, I'm not one to jump on everything that odd happens as a ghost, right? but it is definitely a very interesting place. And I have mm. been back there a couple of times and had some more experiences. So yes, I can definitely sure. say that, yes, there's something to that place. Right. Have you ever had anything follow you home from one of your investigations? 
No, not that I'm aware of. Um, okay. I think for me, and people have always asked me that uh, as well, because, you know, they're like, oh, my God, how do you investigate paranormal and not have anything follow you home? I think for me, I've always made my intent very clear and uh, out loud whenever I visit a haunted location. And that's just basically to let them know I'm only here to hopefully give them a voice if they wish to have one, to listen to what they may have to say. Um, I'm not here to, you know, get rid of them. I, I just want to have the opportunity to hopefully have a better understanding as to who you are and why you are here. And then when I leave, I, I just say it out loud again. I just say, thank you for allowing me to be in your space. I hope you took the time to communicate to me and hopefully I'll be back. How often do we say that when we leave investigations and I still bring stuff home? <laughs> I, I think Dan though, you open your car door and say, get in, get in, get in. Maybe, I'm, 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 like, I'm like the uh, paranormal Uber driver or something like that. So. And uh, Rachel? Quiet as always, but you were writing down a little bit of stuff. So Ross, just to let you know, Rachel is our, our uh, resident medium. Awesome. And some, sometimes she picks up on our guests and sometimes she doesn't. And I saw her, her write, scribbling down a, a few notes there. So now's, yeah, her, I, time. now's her time to speak <laughs> up. Time. Uh, I just wrote down a little bit at the beginning. I really got... Um, I want to say sucked in because I was just more like listening and enjoying everything you're telling us. So uh, awesome. I had to tune in to tune out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what I did write down right at the beginning, um, I put uh, talented multi-levels, which after what you've ta told us, you are very talented in multi-levels. Multi um, hard, your hard work has paid off, but you're... Um, you're also being reminded that you can take an, a break and enjoy what you have created. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe that's something you haven't been doing with yourself. Um, no, you're, you're, you're correct there. I, I do tend to go from one project to the other. It's sometimes not always completing the other project. So I do have a lot of pans in the fire. Um, and, and, and that is you know, due to the fact that, yeah, I, I do find myself you know, I guess multi-talented, you're, you're not the first to say that. A lot of people have said that. Um, and I do tend to not, I hate to say the word, get bored with one project. But it, it mostly pertains to writing, you know, I, and, and writing is a challenge within itself. You know, you, you find yourself, you know, struggling to get your words on paper a lot of times. You know, some people would say writer's block, but, you know, just to make sure you're, you're saying the, the, what you're trying to say correctly. So that tends to move me on to something else when I'm struggling with that, then I'll move on to another project. But yeah, I, I think, you know, right now, my biggest project has been the documentary Parasense that I talked about and we're getting ready to film the next one. So, so yes. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I just wonder if there's something coming up within a celebration. Cause I, I wrote celebration and, and kept circling that too. Yes. Um, in fact, um, I, as I was talking about Parasense and you talked about it should be a series, we were offered the opportunity to do a series. Um, and it sat um, for a while as we were dealing with networks. In fact, Sci-Fi Channel had bought it uh, just before the pandemic. And um, when the pandemic hit, what had happened was uh, NBC had pulled all funding for all their sister networks that caused our uh, contract to be canceled. So we lost that due to the pandemic, but um, soon as the pandemic had lightened up and networks were starting to look for shows, we were dealing with a few different networks. And it was frustrating for me because the networks all be, obviously wanna change things. You know, They wanted to make it their thing too. It, it really, you know, as you're, you're just getting yourself out there in the media world, you know, people think, oh, it's going to be so exciting to have a television show. And I was always against having a television show. In fact, I had been offered shows in the past and I'd always turned it down. But I was more open to this one because they were offering me executive producer. So that gave me more power. I wasn't just a peon that had to do whatever they're bidding as a lot of these people who start out in the industry. So that gave me more power. And I realized, you know, for what I wanted to do with this research, it was going to give me more opportunities to get into some places and more funding too. 
you know, I wanted to see more money going into the research. And for me, that was a main goal for doing this. So as we started to deal with the networks, then they started wanting to do, well, can you do Bigfoot? Can you do alien abductions? Can you, you know, do cases of rape where women or men are claiming to be raped by ghosts? And I, and for me, that was a little taking it out of what I was trying to do. I wasn't uh, wanting to sell my soul to the devil. You know, <laughs> I, I really wanted, my main focus was the research. And so I had six years of research. I published it. We put it together as a documentary. We were going to do it our way and get it out there. And so since we had done that just now to talk about celebration, uh, just today we received our contract because we are now signing with a huge distributor to get it out there for you all to see. Nice. So it's going to be available on all a lot of the major on demands. We're even talking about DVD release, DVD Blu-ray release. So, well, it's a big thing. So good. we're really excited about that. That's great. Good for you. Yeah. You got to remember, this is a family podcast. But I got to ask you about that one book, uh, the Haunted Sex XX. In a nutshell, yeah. what's that all about? Well, it's based off the research that I did when I was researching cases where people were being physically touched. As I was doing my research, I found myself, you know, constantly finding a lot of haunted brothels. Sex was the thing, you know? Sure. So you had, I had a lot of these amazing stories and I realized, well, you know what, with the, the documentary coming out and all this stuff, and I had all this research and the stories, I needed to get it out there. So that's the project that I was working on. All right. And if anybody wants to get uh, a copy of any of your books, uh, where can they find them and where can they contact you if they wanted to? I would tell people go to Amazon. You can find all my books on Amazon. All righty. And uh, your website is aghost.org. Yep. And if they and... want to learn about the documentary, touchedbyaghost.com. Ross, thank you so much for coming on to the Phantom Faction. And uh, we'll have to have you back on. You bet. Thanks. Phantom Faction Podcast, a podcast to educate, entertain, assist, and guide anyone involved or interested in the paranormal. To reach out to Phantom Faction, see our Facebook page or email us directly at phantomfaction at outlook.com.